This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Well, what's going on? Welcome back to the ranch, right? It's been a while. Back at you with another edition of the Clay Young Show here on Podcast 225.com, iTunes, and it's also over on the Talk 107.3 mobile app. This is episode 146, getting that much closer to episode 150. I'm excited about that, y'all. Got something big in store for you with episode 150. Working on it as we speak. Got a big one for you today, too. Our guest is going to be having his first conversation since retiring. That's right. And, of course, I'm talking about former police chief Carl Dabity, who will be here in studio with me in not very long. And we're going to talk about his time on the job, but most notably the last 12 to 18 months and what that has been like for himself, his family, the police department, the city, some of the di- the dialogue that's taken place in Baton Rouge uh, since he has left office and some of his greatest memories of being a police officer. I think I can assume what maybe the darkest period was. I think we can all make that assumption, but uh, you know, maybe we should not assume. We'll give the man a chance to talk about that. He is a multi-generational police officer, not the first in his family to don a badge, and he will tell you a little bit about that when he's here in studio with us in just a moment. So I look forward to our conversation with Chief Dabity in just a minute. Wow, so much to catch up on. Let's see, where shall we begin? First of all, it's the end of the year. Can you believe it? Thanksgiving has come and gone. Christmas is just around the corner. We're about to be in January of 2018. My goodness. I've been doing a lot of moving around in the last six to eight weeks. I got some more coming coming in the next six to next four to five weeks. And as you know, with me, I don't when I'm moving around traveling wise, I don't often or maybe ever <laughs> post pictures of me being away. When I'm away, I don't know. I just, I got a thing about that, but there's a lot going on. One of the recent trips that I have made has been over to Dallas for this program that I mentioned to you some time ago called Urban Specialists. And they are coming to Baton Rouge, and there is a really big move behind them and getting them here because of the work that they do. And again, I encourage you, I said this on a previous episode, you should Google that organization, Urban Specialists. If this is, by the way, your first time checking out our shows, where the hell have you been for the previous 145 episodes? Are you kidding? I think you're going to enjoy what we've got in store for you. It's a great discussion with a friend of mine and a retired police officer, retired police chief. It's what we do. We talk to people on opposing sides of issues, everything from politics to quality of life to fun to entertainment, you name it. And we have had it here on the show. I mean, gosh, in this year, we've spoken to members of Congress. We have spoken to organizations that have done great work, not just in this city, but in other parts of the country. 
Tom Lang, Detective Tom Lang, who was the lead investigator on the O.J. Simpson murder trial, has been on the show, what, three times in the last six months? The work uh, that others are doing in the community, Charles Wallace, Bishop Charles Wallace, pastor of the Oasis Christian Church, has been on the show. We'll get him back in this coming year. He was a good guest. And so we've, you should peruse the list of guests that we've had. And uh, I will warn you, if you go to the show that had Richard Condon on it, Depending on which one you choose, you might not want to have the kids in the car or in the room with you, or you might not want to turn that joker up on the speakers at work. Just don't say you weren't warned. Stephanie Regal with the Business Report has been on the show. George Bell with the Capital Area United Way. Great guy, man. I think he's got a concert coming up soon. I need to get some details on that. And speaking of concerts, by the way, I got a chance to go to the Baton Rouge Symphony Orchestra's Christmas concert Last week as we record this open, man, that is pretty special, pretty special and multicultural as well. If you haven't done that, I encourage you uh, to do that. Timothy Moffat is a treasure here and the orchestra was fantastic and the chorus was phenomenal, phenomenal. And I have special reasons to be rooting for that chorus and they did a great, great job. So, uh, man, so much going on. Like, like I said, the holidays are coming up. Big things planned in 2018. New shows. I'm in negotiations now for a couple of other shows that will be coming to the podcast site. So you stay tuned for all of that information, all right? Don't forget you can follow me on Twitter at ClayYoungBR or on Facebook backslash ClayYoung. Let's take a quick break and then come back with Chief Dabity. Promote your business or organization on Podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Clay Young here, and listen, if you are trying to sell your home but you want to save money, let me tell you something. Denise Harris with Remax Preferred Choice has the answer. Denise, let's talk about that. Yes, Clay. I'm really, really excited to talk about this promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're offering a commission of 3.6%. That's mm-hmm. all you pay. Right. Instead of paying a 6% or a 5%, wow. we're offering you the same services for 3.6%. So you save money, thousands. Yes. And what else do you get? You get a full service listing. Okay. And professionals, full-time agents that are here to service you. You also get professional photos. Right. Right. That's how people shop now. Right. Professional photos are going to help you sell your property. So don't miss the opportunity to get this help. Contact Denise Harris and Annie McGarner right now. How can people reach you? Let us know that you heard it on Q106. Give us a call at 291-4440, 291-4440. Or you can stop by our office at 3300 North Shore Forest Drive. We're here to service you. That's Remax Preferred Choice. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. Back with retired police chief Carl Davity, a member of the Baton Rouge Police Department for, what, almost three decades? 32 years. Over three decades. And you are, and I referenced it in the open, a second generation police officer. Your father not only served, but gave his life serving in the Baton Rouge Police Department. The impact of him being an officer had what impact on you wanting to be an officer? (laughs) 
it had every impact on it. Uh, you know, I, I can remember uh, growing up uh, watching him put his uniform on. Yeah. And, and, you know, every morning when he'd get up and go to work, he'd crank that Harley Davidson up. <laughs> and, I mean, he couldn't help but wake you up. Right, I mean, right. it was a rattle trap right. to start with. Right. But, uh, it, you know, watching him and the, the mannerisms and the uh, – and the the uh, the attention to detail mm-hmm. that he put into putting his uniform on every day, right. getting on that motorcycle and riding off, whether it was five degrees outside or 105 degrees right, outside, right. you know, he was on that bike and he was going in, and it, it just it had a prolific uh, impression on me, and it, it was really all I ever wanted to do. And it's interesting because you were a motorman for a number of years yourself, so you you followed that all the way through. What is Correct. it about? lawmen who become motormen and just they fall in love with motorcycles and and doing that well i i think it's definitely i mean you have to want to do that it has to be an inner passion because right. the, the weather in this part of the country <laughs> i mean when you're melting into the concrete you're not trying to tell us it's hot out here during the summer are you i mean and if you're a motorman around here you know exactly what i'm talking about you know you're getting the heat off the engine you're getting the heat off of the roadway yeah. and then you're getting the hot air blowing in your face right. and i mean sometimes it gets to the point where you just can't breathe but i believe that 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 is a passion that is put inside of you and, right. and it is a special breed and i'm not taking anything away from any other police officer because you could say the same for your SWAT guys sure. you could say the same for your canine guys sure. any specialized division but I, but i believe that that motor officer is a is a presence mm-hmm. and, and you put off that that best foot forward yeah. and you know everything is is clean everything is creased <laughs> everything is shiny you know by the end of the day it's not but, right right but you know you start off that way and i and i truly believe that 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 is a passion that that you have to have or right. or you just you won't put up with those conditions well you were also in the academy you worked with how long were you working with the academy i i did uh well 10 years as the academy director mm-hmm. And then I was a part-time instructor before that since probably 85, no, 88. What led you to do that? Well, actually, former Chief LaDuff. Uh, (laughs) We were going to get into him anyway. I figured that was coming. (laughs) We're going to talk about him anyway. (laughs) Jeff, wait until you're in the studio again and you see what he wrote on the door. That's I. I got to get a picture of you reading what he wrote. But but go go ahead. You know, so so he so Jeff got you in. Well, well, when I when I went into motors, Mm -hmm. uh, myself, which he was a motor man too. He was a motor man too. Uh, Myself. Jeff LaDuff and Walden Robert mm-hmm. were, were on the same squad. Mm-hmm. We had the same days off, worked the same hours. So we became really close. And Jeff was an instructor at the academy at the time. And uh, I would go down there because we were riding partners. Yeah. So when he would go, I'd go with him. And it just kind of fell into place. And, you know, I started teaching mm-hmm. with him. And then he started making me teach the classes. So it, uh, you know, it just kind of just kind of evolved, I, you know. When you're bringing in young men and women or or people who are starting their second career into law enforcement what is your mindset are you trying to scare the hell out of them make sure they're serious about what they're doing is it more of a analytical approach i mean from the perspective of an instructor what is your goal well in a in a basic academy the, the idea is a we want them to have a complete 
and without hesitation understanding of what they are getting into. Mm-hmm. Everybody is not meant to wear a uniform. Right. It's, it's just not meant. It, right. You know, it, it's, it's something that's interbred and it's a passion that you have to have. And it has to be in your DNA. Mm-hmm. So first you, you have to make sure that they understand what they're doing and, and, and what consequences come with this. You know, yeah. with, with every reward, there, there's a price to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, in law enforcement, unfortunately, that, that price may be your life. Yeah. So we want to make sure that, A, they know what they're getting into. So, yeah, we probably scare the crap out of mm-hmm. them the first mm-hmm. day. And if anyone's been through military boot camp, it's similar. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tear them completely down and then build them all the way back up. But it's kind of a reality that you have to give people because of the nature of what you're doing every day. Oh, yes. Helping uh-huh. people who are in their worst uh, worst case scenario, often either on the highway or going in to help someone who's in distress in a home, defending against someone who is trying to, to cause harm. I mean, you have to be ready for so many different variables. You, you have to be ready for, for anything at any time. Yeah. And, and, you know, that that's the whole thing. You never know when that time is. Yeah. It, you know, it could be at the beginning of the shift, it could be at the end of the shift, it could be at your fifth year, it could be at your 30th mm-hmm. year. You know, you just never know when that time is going to happen. So you have to make sure that, that they're prepared for that. Mm-hmm. They understand that. Uh, and, and that, it, you know, it, it can happen and it can happen at any time. What are some of the other divisions that you worked in uh, at PD? Uh, I worked in, uh, I started out in as a cadet, mm-hmm. which uh, we worked downtown and wrote parking tickets. Yeah. Uh, so we basically walked the beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then went into the academy. Uh, after the academy, I went into uniform patrol for, for a short time. I worked out of second district on mm-hmm. dog shift. And then um, I went to motors. I spent 17 years in motors. I left there and went to the academy. Uh, as an instructor, I then became the academy director. And then I went to Uniform Patrol Assistant Commander under uh, Captain Patan. And then I was Chief of Staff and then Chief. The department, as you heard your dad talk about it, you know, what, do, what stories do you remember him telling? And, and compare that as a part B to the question to some of the experience you, experiences you had so many years later. Well, I believe, well, for one thing, my dad was, was, didn't bring work home. So there wasn't a lot of, of stories about what he had done. I know that, uh, uh, you know, he, in the riots, uh, uh, the North Boulevard riots, yeah. I know he was yeah. there. He was a part of that. Um, and I guess, you know, full circle for my last year of yeah. chief, we yeah. had our protests yes. and, and different things. So, yeah. uh, you know, that kind of was ironic that, that it happened that mm-hmm. way. Uh, but I, I mean, there were a lot of stories, there were a lot of good friendships that were developed through the years of, of him riding, him being a police officer and, and those families, you know, because we all became family mm-hmm. and, you know, those people he worked with became friends and then those friends shared family events and yeah. family outings. So the, you know, it, it is truly a, a brotherhood It's truly a family, mm-hmm. uh, once you get in and, uh, I guess with, with him, I didn't understand that until I became a part of it. Yeah. And then that bond, uh, I mean, you know, it's like any, you can go anywhere in the country and I can pick out who are policemen. Yeah. You know, I can, I can yeah, just you pick can them see. out. Right. And, um, you know, you go somewhere and I'll, I'll just run into it. You're law enforcement. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, how did you know that? And, 
and it's just truly a brotherhood that, yeah. that, that you're able to recognize. The different parts of a community like Baton Rouge, where you have more affluent neighborhoods, you have some of the poor neighborhoods, some of the neighborhoods in between. It has always been my philosophy that most of the people in the city are good people, and that includes the inner city, where some of the poor among us are. Relationship-wise, how do you, how did you, and how, what's your philosophy on building a connection with people in the community? Well, uh, you know, like you said, the, this, this community, this parish, this mm-hmm. city mm-hmm. is 99% great people. No doubt. They, I mean, it, that's just, it just is. Be uh, a hell of a lot of anarchy if there wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, we have that 1% of our yeah. society, and, and that's anywhere. Anywhere. It's not just Baton Rouge. It's right. anywhere that, that caused the most problems. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of people are where they're at by no fault of their own, mm-hmm. whether they be in an affluent neighborhood or they're, sure. they're not in an affluent neighborhood. Yeah. And a lot of times they don't have choices. And it is important that those people understand that, you know, that we're here for everybody. Yeah. There, there, there's no there's no lines drawn in the sand. Right. Uh, it is, you know, we're the police department is here to to help the whole community. Mm-hmm. That's that's our job. We're right. public servants. Right. And, and that's what we do. Uh, and. and you know, a smile goes a long way. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, police officers get a bad rap because they say, oh, he's, he's never smiles. He ne-, you know, and a lot of times it's because we spend 90% of our day in the worst parts of our society. Yeah. You know, we're dealing with the worst parts of our community. Yeah. And it's uh, generally when people call you, they're not saying come over and have some dinner or some lunch. <laughs> they're calling you to help deal with, a, with correct, a bad situation. Correct. I have a bad problem that I can't fix. So yeah. I need you to come fix that's it. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, I, you know, officers get accustomed to that, yeah. you know, that, that we don't really see the better part of the community for the most part, other than just driving through town. So, uh, you know, going out and talking to the community, and that was a big thing, getting officers out of their cars. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's out on their, sitting on their front porch, go out and talk to them. Yeah. Introduce yourself. Yeah. It, it takes less than five minutes. Yeah. Hey, my name is Officer such yeah. and such. I yeah. work this area. How can I help you? Is there something that we can do to help you? Right. You know, those things w- were very important, and that's how you make that, that one contact. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that one contact may be the one contact that, that changes this person's life, you know? So we were together, I guess a month and a half ago for the first canvas when we walked through Brookstown and it was a Monday. The people there didn't know we were coming. Correct. And we walked through and met some people. What was, first of all, and everybody has seen this, that it was an overwhelming outpouring of love and it was love from the people too. I'm not just talking about the group of us walking with your interaction with them. And you see how they interacted with you mm-hmm. and how they talked with you. Right. It's funny that you see that and then a narrative that's told is often so different. What What is your response to that? Well, you know, we neighborhood canvases, we've done them for sure. years. They're not. They're certainly not brand it's, new. It's not yeah. a new thing. No. And we have done them for yeah. years. And, and that reaction is the same reaction we get from everyone we do. Yeah. Uh, that's where... You know, you go in and you interact, and you just you're just talking, you're just mm-hmm. communicating with people. You're you're uh, you're coming to their neighborhoods. Yeah. You're seeing firsthand what their problems are, yeah. what their issues are, yeah. and they don't mind talking to you about it. 
and, and you know the the overwhelming support from that neighborhood, mm-hmm. and, and it's in every neighborhood we go to. It's like they're glad to see you. They're going, right. hey, somebody is actually taking time out of their day right. to come in my neighborhood right. and find out what I need. Yeah, you know, and. and Things happen. Sure. You know, when, when you do that, you get DPW over there to cut mm-hmm. the grass. You get DPW yep. to clean the ditches. Right. You get DPW to do these things. Mm-hmm. You get narcotics agents mm-hmm. to look at a house and, yeah. and see if that house is a problem. Yeah. And if it is, then we fix that. Right, problem. right. So it's, um, it, is, it is a way for you to get in that community and get a feel for what they're dealing with. And you can actually help them other than, you know, possibly, you know, every once in a while they'll call you. Yeah and lead you there that way. But this way, you actually see it, and they see you. And the context of the interaction is so different because you're not there because of a call on a domestic or because of a, a shooting that may have happened around the corner. Right. You're basically knocking on your neighbor's door to say, hey, how are you? Correct. You know, what can we do for you? Your, you know, there, are, there has been this narrative more so recently about police officers and black communities and that police officers are, quote, unquote, an o- occupying force, that the Baton Rouge Police Department only wants to roust and arrest uh, black men. It's unfair. It's racist and all of these things. Your response to that is what? Untrue. That's not that's not what we do. Uh, the, you know, as a police department, our job is to go to high crime areas and to stop the crime. That's what we do. We use data-driven policing. Explain to, what that means for someone uh, who doesn't who doesn't know. Data-driven policing is is simply you go to where the the crimes are happening, mm-hmm. and, and we're using data through reports, uh, through CAD systems, uh, through complaints, mm-hmm. uh, telling us where the crime is happening. Right. And you know, for me, when that narrative came out, it was kind of like. You know, you got to be kidding me. You're, you're hitting me with with uh, with this saying that that we're we're being unfair in how we police, but we're going by the statistics that we get. We're going by the data. We're going by how many homicides we've had in that area, yeah. how many burglaries, how yeah. many shots fired we've had. You know, all this equipment that we bought, our shot spotter system, our ADSI CAD system, our our report writing, report management system is telling us and steering us in that direction Mm -hmm. to go to. So it's not like we were just randomly picking streets and going to it. It was all backed up by data, and that data was crime. And that's where, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if Clay Young is looking for people to to help them with their advertising, Mm -hmm. He's going to go where they need advertising. Oh, oh sure. I mean, he's Absolutely. not going somewhere where they got right. all the advertising they need. Sure. You know, well, you know, and that's where our community is telling us, hey, you need to come in here and fix these problems. Right. You know, so, you know, the narrative that was pitched was not a true narrative. Uh, Jeff has been in here and has talked about this before. When you encounter a situation where an officer has either gone outside of the boundary of his responsibilities or her responsibilities. And that, that isn't just interaction with people. It could be a high number of things because it is a, it, it is a, a, a designated leader of the community when you are a police officer, mm-hmm. but from everything from an issue where you think an officer was too aggressive, rather physically or verbally, or there's something else. What is the process of dealing with that situation? Well, you know, a lot of times the narrative is pitched that we don't do we don't do anything to them. Well, that couldn't be any more further from the truth. You know, uh, we're bound by a union contract. We're mm-hmm. bound by po- we have an almost nine hundred page policy manual. Mm-hmm. So 
there are 900 pages of things a policeman can do that get him in trouble. Yeah. Uh, plus, you know, we're governed by civil service. So sure. there's a, a process that has to be done for a chief, and any chief, mm-hmm. not just me, but any chief, to give out discipline. Uh, and if that discipline policy or is not followed, then whatever discipline I get out is overturned. And then it's, it, you know, th- there's no punishment for it. So as a chief, we have to make sure that we follow that policy, that, that procedure of giving that discipline out, or you risk the chance of civil service overturning your discipline, right. and then nothing mm-hmm. happens. So you have to make sure, and that process takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. They want it to happen now. And a lot of times you just, you can't do it now, because if you do it now, civil service is going to overturn it and then you're back to square one. There's a segment of the population that believes the books are cooked in favor of cops when there is an issue or a question regarding the actions of a police officer, that the system is set up for the cop to be able to keep his or her job and that it's it's not fair. Your response is? Well, uh, we, have civil, we have a civil service system, and the civil service system is geared towards the employee. Mm-hmm. It, it is so that bosses in a in a hierarchy cannot just randomly pick on people and give them unfair discipline. Sure. The discipline is set up in a fair procedural way mm-hmm. where the employee gets the benefit of the doubt. And so, but, but if a person is in violation of some hardline practice, are you saying that this doesn't mean that they're protected, that if they have broken policy, broken the law, they will be? That uh, is correct. So, if, if, they, if they have violated the policy or they have violated the law, Mm-hmm. They will be that discipline will be handed out. How how has this two year period of dialogue that actually started before last year with with some of these accusations made? How has that impacted the job of police chief? Uh, it, it it it's impacted it a lot. Uh, you know, it's it's really hard for for a chief because we're not an at will employer. Mm-hmm. You know, we we. We have civil service. We have a union contract. We have things that we have to follow, sure. and which for the employee is a great benefit because that means the boss has to make sure that you're following those policies and procedures, and and their rights are not being violated yeah. in any way. Uh, but it really makes it hard for a chief that in certain instances, you know that this person is going to be terminated, right? And you need to do it as quickly as you can, right? But you have this procedure that you have to follow, right. and it takes time to do that. And then it gives the perception that, oh, well, the, this is going to be swept under the rug and nothing's mm-hmm. going to happen. But it does happen, but it just takes time. With, with the public not having a clear knowledge of how that works, and, and you know, realistically so, people sure. are busy. They don't have time to read the policy guide. And, and, but with the public not having a clear understanding of how that works, it does open the door for assumptions to be made yes, it and does. that when people don't see the process, they assume that, OK, they're just covering for their for their, you know, police officer, the boy, girl, whatever. Um, how do you fix that? Well, you know, it, we live in an age of social media. We live <laughs> in an age of instant news, yeah. you know, and yeah. that things, yeah. you know, happen automatically. Yeah. Uh, we have a generation now of Okay, so there was a pause right there. He was getting ready to make a comment about a generation of millennials. 
And then the power dropped in the studio. <laughs> we went on backup power in the building. Leave it to you to come here and blow up my podcast, man. It may have only seemed like about three seconds to you, but it's been about 25 minutes over here. We had to go on to generator power to get this thing back going again, man. You see that? You see what man, you did? I, somebody's trying to tell us something. <laughs> somebody's trying to tell us something. Quit while you're behind, That's maybe. Right. <laughs> wow. Okay, so... <laughs> I'm trying to remember where we, know where we were. <laughs> Hold up, folks. Give us a second. All right. So now we know where we are. <laughs> so uh, we were talking about people understanding the policy and the, and the way all of that goes. And when something happens, they don't necessarily have foreknowledge as to how you're going to handle it. And we were talking a little bit about how you change that. So how do you change that? Wow, uh, that, that's the, the million-dollar question, right? Uh, you know, how you change it. Um, you know, I've told a lot of people through, through the years when, when, when these issues have come up, uh, you know, and unfortunately, civil service is not a guideline. Civil service is a law. It's a state right. law right. that right. has to be followed. Right. So the only way to change it is it's got to be changed in the state legislature. It has to be changed uh, giving chiefs a little more authority, a little more power. And I'm not saying it's got to drastically be changed yeah. to to where there's no rights for, for employees, but there needs to be some, it needs to be updated. It needs to be revised uh, to where chiefs do have that power okay. in certain circumstances yeah. that if, you know, if something happens and, and they need to terminate someone quickly, then there needs to be a process for yeah. that to happen. And there needs to be a fair process for that to happen. You, you mentioned earlier the working relationship with the union. What was your working relationship with the union, with Brad and Chad and oh, I, uh, Brian and Chad? Yeah, and the guy you know, I, when I first came in as chief, I was uh, I had a relationship of working with Chris Stewart, who yeah. was the president yeah. at that time. Yeah. And then uh, Chad King and yeah. Brian Taylor mm-hmm. uh, took over after that. And I've, I've always had the <clears throat> utmost admiration for both of those guys. Yeah. Uh, Brian Taylor and I ha- have, have come up through the ranks together. Uh, Brian is a very level-headed guy who makes good decisions uh, and has the best interest of the department at heart. Right. Um, and uh, I, I never had any issues working with any of them. Uh, we, we had uh, – there was always a respect level between yeah. the both of us. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking out for the betterment of the department. The union's looking out for the betterment of the employee or the right. union member. So there was always an understanding and a respect for each other's job and duties. Uh, but um, – I always had a good working relationship and we could always come to the table and, you know, everybody would have to give a little to get a little. So, I mean, it, it was always um, a, a good, uh, honest working relationship with the union. Let's go. Um, let's move into last year. All right. That's what people are waiting for. The pre July 4th Baton Rouge, in your opinion, was what? Can you even remember? Uh, we, we were a city that was coming together. Uh, you know, when, when I took over as chief, Mayor Holden had given me the, the task of, of bettering the, uh, relationship between the community and the police department. Uh, that was a task that he had given to me. And I, working with the community in, in all the events that we did and, uh, all the community meetings that we did and, and forming relationships and forming bonds, uh, I, we were making progress. We were making steps forward. Um, and, 
you know, uh, and, and I truly believe had we not done that the past year or past two years or year and a half would have been much worse Yeah. because, you know, in the, it, you can't make, you can't make those types of contacts after an event happens. Right. You have to make those events before that happens. And, and I believe making those contacts for the three previous years of my tenure and going to all of those meetings and talking to the community, holding the boo with the blue, holding our community events that we had uh, at the department, our community meetings at the department mm -hmm. or, or at the churches and different places that we held those, I, I think truly helped us a lot. Uh, partnering with Young Leaders Academy was mm -hmm. one of our huge success stories. Right. Uh, Miss Tanya Robertson, who is the, the leader uh, or the executive director of Young Leaders Academy was instrumental in, in getting the department pushed in a direction of community service. So uh, making those contacts and working with these organizations inside our community were huge. Carl is bringing me uh, some water here because dab comes in and the power goes out and <laughs> as old as I am, I break out with the hiccups in the middle of an interview. This is just, this is, this is, man, this was one for, for the record books here, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, and so just after or, or around midnight on July 4th of last year, there was an interaction between, between Alton Sterling. I said, let me get some water here. Yeah. This is unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. Raw podcast. You're hearing it as it happens. Inter, uh, altercation between uh, African-American male, two of your officers. Uh, I'm sure you, you were probably at home when you got the call. Tell Correct. me about what call did you get? And as much as you can talk about, because this is still yes, being, it's uh, still a pending investigation, with. so I can't say a whole lot right. about it. But of, of, uh, of, a, of that night, you can say, what, can, what will you say? Well, I mean... Looking back on it now, you know, it was obviously a turning point in the city. Uh, you know, it, it was uh, the call that every chief hates and just prays that they never get it, right. is that we have an officer involved shooting. Um, you're given the, the, the details and the location and, then you know, you just go. You know, mm -hmm. we are we have a we had a prop. A, procedure in place for when those things happen and there's a call out list that happens and I mean you know it just you follow the procedure and you you get out there and you just you hope and pray for the best you know uh, you know it's a bad situation you know something obviously bad has happened right uh, and, and you just hope that everybody involved uh, is safe and okay and um, you just go from there what time did you get to the scene wow it was probably around one o'clock, if I remember right. Um, that's been so long ago. It, but it was probably around around one a.m. How long after the the altercation was that? I believe it was about an hour and a half okay. after the shooting. I know that as we talked about, this is being handled by Jeff Landry's office. You can't Correct. get into those details, but. What was your first impression of what was about to happen based upon what had happened as you were there? Or can you talk about that? Uh, I didn't really have uh, an impression. Um, you know, it, it, when we go to those uh, scenes, you know, our, we, we had a shooting investigation team that 
would handle the investigation. So we were just in the, the, the collection mode of evidence and making sure that, that, uh, that we collected everything properly and done everything properly. And, you know, at that point, it's just, you know, all of those pieces were actually doing their job and they were working and, and collecting all of that. So, you know, you never want to jump to any conclusions in that because it, it can go so many different directions. Uh, so you try just to let's let's be let's be calm and let's make sure that we do everything correctly and then you know we get the information and it, it is what it is at that point. In lieu of what had been happening around the country with some of these other cities, what had happened in Ferguson and all of these other places, when this happens within forty eight hours, Baton Rouge is on national news and is being characterized as a small as a as a southern town mm-hmm. which is dog whistle uh, right. for saying a, a racist town right. and right. you you have got to now deal with what's happening here Correct. the reality of people on the ground not really knowing what to think and people gathering because of what is being what is happening nationally i mean what was that like what was going through your mind as you still had to lead a police department well I- you know, making making those contacts that we talked about earlier was was huge and instrumental. Uh, the the citizens of this community, uh, their their patience, uh, their outpouring of support on both sides. I, I mean, it wasn't just right. one sided. Right, it, right. It, it was both ways. You know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, and everybody's entitled to protest, and and we. Uh, we supported that. Yeah. You know, we, as, as myself, Hiller, the sheriff and Colonel Edmondson at the time uh, got together and, and decided, Hey, we don't know what's going to happen, but if something happens, we need to be prepared for it. Yeah. Uh, so within less than 24 hours of, of that happening, the investigation was turned over to the state police mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, and, and that was because of what has happened nationally. We yeah. felt that uh, this this had a potential to be bad, and we need to make sure that we're transparent and that we do everything correctly. You got um, criticized for that. W- w- yes. We, like we, within the days of making the decision, people said, you shouldn't have given it to the feds. Don't bring in the Justice Department. Hand, handle it yourself. Now, I have to admit, opposite of that, when things like this happen, you generally have people say, let's bring in the Justice Department to make certain that correct. it's done uh, quote unquote fairly, you guys did that and drew criticism for it. Correct, and, and you know, but we, but there, there was such a strong outcry from from not only from law enforcement from, but from the the public was that this needs to be handled very transparent and right. it needs to be handled by an outside agency. Yeah, uh, and we agreed on that, and, and we thought that it that it needed to be, and we felt that the Justice Department uh, was the right agency to do that, um, and. Um, I, I still believe it was the right move. What did the rank and file believe about that? Because I know that officers have pride in their ability to take care of this. Did you draw backlash from some of your, uh, some of the people in your department because of it? I mean, ultimately the decision was made by the DA's office. Is, is that correct? That's correct. But did you draw criticism from people who said you should have fought with a district attorney more to say, hey, let us keep this, we can handle this? Well, I, I don't know that I caught any criticism for that. I am sure there were there were people in the department that, that you know that felt that it we should have handled it the way that we've always handled right. it. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, no, none of that really got back to me as as far as 
criticism uh, of how it was done. Uh, you know, I, I believe that, that the violent crimes unit that we have here in the city are some of the best homicide investigators and, and violent crime investigators anywhere in the country. Uh, working with, you know, we're working with state police, we're working with the sheriff's office, we're working with all the federal agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is not really one department. It is a, a combination of all agencies uh, that are actually working out of the VCU. Uh, so it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't whether we thought they could do a good job or not. That really had nothing to do with it. It was the fact that we wanted it to be transparent and we wanted it to be handled right. by an outside agency with no ties or affiliation. In the days after the shooting, there were so many dialogues across town, all these groups getting together to talk about this. And I think for the most part, the discussions that I, I didn't attend all of them, but some right. of the ones that I went through went to were constructive and people yes. wanted to have a discussion about how we can avoid this kind of thing happening again. I did read and hear about others that were more contentious, more combative, and obviously that's going to draw media attention more often than not because media likes a freak show. <laughs> and so, uh, right. but, but most of the dialogue, I thought, was just people saying what they felt, whether people agreed with it or not. And you attended many of them. I mean, most of them, the ones that you could attend, you know, I saw you at some and I got worried about you attending others. What was your reaction and, and your recollection of how that was? For the most part, I mean, most of the meetings were, were just like you said, they were very constructive. Uh, people were wanting to voice their opinions. Mm-hmm. They wanted us to, to hear their concerns and they wanted to know how, how do we avoid this in the sure, future? How, sure. do, how do we fix this? Uh, most of the meetings that I went to were very uh, calm. They were very orderly. Mm-hmm. They were very professional. Sure. Uh, it was just people wanting to talk. And, and yeah, it, it was an uncomfortable conversation to have, but right. it was a conversation that needed to be had. Um, there were some that got contentious. Uh, there were some that got emotional. Mm-hmm. And I think for the most part, it was more emotion sure. than it was anything Absolutely. else. Absolutely. And, and it, it was a way for for parts of for for some of our community to come out and say, hey, yeah. you know, th- we want our voices heard. We right. want you to hear what we're saying. And for the from from my standpoint, it was it was just a matter of listening. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, when you get into those those types of meetings where people want to share their emotions and yeah. they want to talk. You know, they really don't want to hear what I have to say. Right. They want me to hear what they're right. saying. Because you're the so, authority in that situation. Correct. Correct. And and so few people, even though you're out and about, not every citizen has access to the police chief because you're covering That's the correct. entire city. You know, in the, in the days after the shooting, your department was questioned by a number of people, some people here in town that wanted you to fire officers uh, Lake and Salamone immediately. Correct. And you've spoken earlier to the process and the way that works, so people have heard that. Right. But I'd like you to briefly talk about how that was, where, where all these arrows were coming in your direction saying, fire them now. Well, and, you know, firing them now was a knee-jerk reaction. Would have, would have been a knee-jerk reaction to uh, something that we didn't have all the facts to. Right. You know, as I said, we, we in less than 24 hours, we turned the investigation completely over to the FBI or the Department of Justice. Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, 
again, getting back to civil service and the, the procedure that you have to take to fire somebody, mm-hmm. had that been done, let's just say for whatever reason that we did do that and right. we did terminate them, right. they would have taken that case of civil service. They would have gotten their job back because we didn't follow protocol. Right. They would have been given their job back and they would have sued the city for wrongful termination and they would have won. Mm-hmm. You know, So a lot of times doing a knee-jerk reaction you can't you have to see the forest for the trees and sometimes you know yeah in my opinion I had to do what was correct I had to do what was right it wasn't popular but it was the right thing to do Uh, and and again you know we're 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 still waiting on that investigation to come through the the feds gave their opinion about this and decided not to Press, you know, take this thing any further with charges or anything of that nature, and then the Correct. AG's office picked it up. Were Correct. you, you weren't there when Corey Amundsen released his? Were you in the building when he gave his findings? No. Okay. And when you heard his presser and what he said, what was your reaction? I thought I thought they did a very good job of explaining the whole incident from okay. start to finish. Okay. I, I think they painted a picture for the community without showing, you know, a lot of the videos, which right. uh, it can't be shown at this time sure. because there's still evidence. Right. Uh, but I, I feel that Corey did a really good job in explaining from start to finish what transpired. Mm-hmm. Now, whether everybody agrees with the actions that were taken. Sure. Uh, you know that, that I'm sure they don't, but I thought he did a really good job in explaining it and painting a picture for the community mm-hmm. as to what really happened uh, that night. Uh, they found that they didn't feel that there was probable cause to charge mm-hmm. uh, Blaine or uh, Howie with any crimes uh, from a federal statute, uh, which was then again why it was turned over to the AG from that point. There were protests directly after the shooting in the town. One of the ones I could remember was on a Saturday night, and there were crowds of people outside of BRPD. And when the protesters were getting ready to leave, because the advocate was live streaming it, some of those kids were picking up trash and bagging it up and putting it at the corners. (laughs) And I said, you know... That's Baton Rouge. <laughs> and if everybody, if anybody wants an example of how the majority of the rabble rousing was done by people without, who don't have a Baton Rouge address, that's an example. It was comical to me to say these kids have been out there and they're picking up their bottles. And, and so just kind of talk about that period because there were some harsh words thrown your way, but there were also kids and people who were out there who just, as you said earlier, wanted to have their voices heard. You know, most of the protests that, that were done uh, were, were, were peaceful. They were orderly. Sure. Uh, the, the community was, was perfect. They, they would call us. They would say they want to do a protest. We would help them set it up. Mm-hmm. We'd get it done. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Councilman Wicker yeah. uh, had called and said that her daughter uh, was, going to, was at, at school, and their school wanted to organize a protest, and they wanted to march to the Capitol, and they were going to march back, and that was on that Sunday. Yeah. Uh, when when the interstate uh, thing was done there by East Boulevard, yeah, and, and we worked with the group the whole time. We we blocked off all the roads. We had motorcycles out there doing all their escort, and it, it was it was a perfect 
event. Uh, everybody was able to say their piece, say what they wanted to say, and there were no issues. And most of the protests were that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, the ones that were done there to Circle K, they're on the corner of Goodwood and Airline. Uh, like you said, when the event was over, there was people out there picking up the garbage. Yeah. They were moving uh, barricades out of the way. I didn't expect to see that. Uh, I mean, really, for the most part, it, it was our our amazing citizens that are in yeah. this community that they wanted their opportunity to speak, they got their opportunity to speak, and then they held up their end of the yeah. bargain. You know, they cleaned up their messes. Right. Uh, I mean, it was truly, like you said, it was truly amazing to sit back and, and watch it happen. But, uh, you know, there, there were only very few instances where they did get out of hand mm -hmm. and they did get out of control. And, and I believe, you know, and we've had, I, I can't tell you how many other departments across this country have reached out to myself and to Sheriff Gotro and, and to state police and said, how did y'all do that? Right. You know, how did you not have a building burn? How did right. you not have the looting? How did yeah. you not have all of this? And I truly believe it, it was from, from the beginning, we, we set the parameters yeah. and we stayed true to our word. Yeah. You know, as long as you don't become violent, as long as you don't tear up property, mm -hmm. as long as you're peaceful, you can protest, and you can right. protest for as long as you want, and we will help you, you know. But it was only during the times when it became violent, when it became destructive, uh, or they broke laws that that, that we did anything. Uh, and I truly believe that because we set that precedence and because we were consistent with it, the community knew what their parameters right. were, and they stayed within them, and there was no problem. I remembered you talk, you drawing criticism about quote unquote militarized tactics. And that was because people saw officers coming come out in riot gear with the shields and the helmets. Right. And there were people critical of the appearance of that. Why did you decide that you needed your officers to be equipped in such uh, equipment? Well, it, it, that equipment is a safety equipment. Yeah. Let, let's let's put that up front. That is for the officer's safety. Mm -hmm. And as we saw, sure. we, I had an officer get his teeth knocked out. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't that, that you know a particular person was in front of him and punched him in the mouth and knocked his teeth sure. out. It was a bottle or a rock that was thrown from behind the crowd and it hit him in the face and it knocked his teeth out. Um, you know, and, and it's just safety equipment. Sure. I, I can assure you. If y'all remember, this was in July. Mm -hmm. Anybody remember how hot it is in July? Right. Yeah. Those officers did not want to be wearing that heavy equipment because it is very, very hot. And we were having to spell officers because mm -hmm. they just couldn't stay in that equipment that long. So we were rotating people in and out. And it is strictly for the officer's safety. It, it wasn't uh, anything about... Uh, you know, a military presence or an aggressive stance that right. we're taking, it's protective gear. Right. And it's designed to protect the officer from injury. Less than two weeks after the incident we're talking about with Alton Sterling and these officers, someone not from here comes to Baton Rouge and shoots and kills three men, wounds uh Two others, two others, and had the intention and certainly the capacity to kill a lot more. Yes. That Sunday, July 17th, where were you when you got the call? What was the call? Well, uh, number one, the 
the worst day of my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, not only a, as chief, uh, but but just as a citizen of Baton Rouge. Yeah. You know, it was. Uh, I was at home. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, you know, w- we felt. Uh, in the staff meeting we had, you know, during this time we were having staff meetings every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the staff meeting we had, we felt that, hey, I think we're catching a break. I think yeah. we're on the downside of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the officers had been working for almost a sure. month straight, sure. you know, between from the uh, from from everything that was going on. You know, we it just been it just been horrible. Yeah. Uh, so we felt like we were on the downside. Mm-hmm. We felt like, you know, that we're getting to where we we can ease up here things yeah. things are getting better we're yeah. getting more back to normal yeah. so to say and um you know and, and matter of fact I, i'm sitting I, i'm i'm awake and, and just watching the morning news mm-hmm. i believe and uh i'm talking to my wife mm-hmm. and, and i'm telling her the very exact yeah. same yeah. thing you know yeah. i i think we've reached uh um, the, the top of the hill and we're on the downside and my phone rings and i see that it's it's headquarters and you know on a sunday morning it whatever, 7.30 or 7.43 or whatever time it was mm-hmm. that morning, it, you know, I, I'm thinking to myself, this can't be good. Yeah. You know, I, this is not this is not good. I shouldn't yeah. be getting this phone call. So I get the phone call, and, and I mean, it's just, I, I have a dispatcher who is panicked. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can hear it in her voice, and she is one of my better dispatchers. She is, she is one of the ones that, you know, you – in a situation, you want her dispatching because she's calm, she's collective, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, she is just she's she's panicked, and yeah. uh, she's trying to tell me what's going on, and she can't get it out, and I'm trying, I'm asking questions, and she can't answer them, and sure. she's panicking. So, uh, you know, it, it's just, uh, I, I mean, the, the the feeling that that you get is just you, you feel like you just get kicked in the skin, yeah. you can't breathe, and you just. Uh, you're you're hoping for the best. You're hoping that 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 uh, it's not as bad as what you're hearing. And how much information did you get over that over the phone before you were able to get to the site? Very little. Okay. Uh, what I you know I, I was able to get that that we had officers down. Mm-hmm. I was able to get that uh, it, it was it was an ongoing shooting. Uh, when I got the call, you know it, the the shooting was still happening. Mm-hmm. We, we they didn't. They didn't know anything other than we have officers down that because they've requested EMS, and um, we have shots still being fired. Yeah. So uh, that that's basically the information I had when I left. So you get to the scene, and was everything pretty much over, or was this still going on by the time you get there? By the time I get there, in hindsight now, we know that it was over, mm-hmm. you know, um, that that the suspect was down, mm-hmm. uh, but you didn't know if there was more know than that. one. We yeah. didn't know if there was. Actually, we were being told that there's more than one shooter, okay. and the scene was still active, and we had an active search okay. going on for the second shooter. Or that's third. right. I remembered because it, it there was was even a detainment of some people in Port Allen, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it was. I mean, it was chaotic as as anyone can imagine. Uh, we, we had the scene secured itself. Sure. Uh, we were worried about the neighborhood behind over there because there's, there's a lot of people there. 
in those neighborhoods. We were worried about making sure that we secured the area. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, you know, we're worried about trying to find a second shooter if he's there uh, because we don't even want anybody else hurt. So uh, it it was, and it was such a big area. You know, we had four buildings just right there that had to be searched and cleared. And it's Sunday morning. So, you know, not everybody's working, right. you know, and it was it is literally the quietest there. morning in Baton Rouge, yes. a Sunday morning. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you prior to this event, you could earn a pin drop yeah. anywhere in Baton Rouge. When you get there, this thing, the, the scene is secure and you're now surveying the damage left behind this less than 20 minute uh, thing that plays out. You know, I, I, I just I got to imagine that you are just numb with emotion based yes. upon what's going on. Yes. Well, you know, once I get to the scene uh, and, and I, I see that the scene is secure, yeah. uh, we finally get, uh, you know, that, that, that the scene is secure and that we can start uh, processing the scene. Mm-hmm. You know, well, now at this point I'm thinking I've got to get to the hospital. Yeah. I've got to get to the families. Yeah. I've got to make sure that the families are being notified and, and I've got to get there because at this point, I'm not real sure of the extent mm-hmm. of injuries at this point. You know, I know that that we have some officers that 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 have been slain, mm-hmm. uh, but I also have others that were injured. So right. I don't know what their condition is. So, right. you know, the next thing is to get to the hospital and start making sure that the families are contacted, making sure the families uh, are, are, are getting what they need. I mean, of course, there's nothing we can give them uh, at that point because of what they've lost. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, yes, numbness uh, and just trying to make sure that we take care of them. And then not only them, but our officers yeah. who, that were involved that may not yeah. have been hit, yeah. but were involved. And that, they witnessed it, had never seen anything like that before. Uh, you know, uh, officers that picked up our slain officers and yeah. put them in a vehicle and yeah. got them to the hospital. I mean, yeah. that is very traumatic for yeah. someone who's never experienced something like that. I mean, yeah. it's basically a war zone. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's undescribable. You know, th- it was surreal that whole day. And yes. I, I could remember because I ended up coaching, I was volunteer coaching a basketball game for the Y and it was a Sunday game because of some scheduling thing with one of the other gyms. And I get to the gym and the gym is, I mean, way less than half empty. The other team, uh, they were very late. We didn't know if they were going to show up because people were so terrified. Correct. And, you know, we're sitting there and they finally come and there are people nervous about playing the game. And it's like, look, you know, these kids are here. Mm-hmm. Let's just do this. Right. It probably is the best thing for the children who are here right now anyway. So we did. And then by the time I got back to the house and you're turning on the news and you're seeing Baton Rouge. And I'm just thinking this is this is not real that I'm watching scenes from my city on television and, and the scroll on the bottom of the screen. And and it changed Baton Rouge in ways that we have not recovered from in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know of any city that had a month like we did last month. I mean, there were incidents in Dallas and in St. Louis and in Ferguson and in, you know, Baltimore, all those places, but nothing like what we had here. I agree. And then (laughs) 
less than a month later or right at a month later, the city floods. And I want to take my time getting to the floods. And I know that we're shorter on time now because you blew all the power out of my <laughs> building. But um, the next day, I'm in Shreveport. I have a, a couple of meetings up there. And I'm listening to the news on XM, and they're talking about this press conference that was going to happen, a joint press conference. I think it was it was you, it was Sheriff Gotro, it was uh, Hiller Moore. Walt Green was involved with that uh, right. as well. And so I, I'm listening as the beginning is coming up, and I get to where I could park, and I pull it up on my iPhone so I could watch it. And it was a combination of instructive and defiance particularly on your part when you're talking about this instructing the public about what happened but a defiant defense of law enforcement and you said this is why we do some of the things that we do that there are threats that we hear about that the public doesn't already always know about uh talk about that well, you know, going back to to what you said about earlier about, you know, I, I'm assuming this is what you're referring yes. to is the military yes, style yes, yes. and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. gear that mm-hmm. we wear and the mm-hmm. techniques that mm-hmm. we use, the tactics that we use. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times the public doesn't know the threats that we get. They don't know the things that go on. Uh, you know, a lot of times if it doesn't happen in your house, sure. you don't know what Absolutely. goes on in this city. Absolutely. And probably, you know, you know if people knew what was transported on trucks and rail through this city, they probably wouldn't come out of their house all day. No question. question. And and law enforcement is pretty much the same way. If you really knew what actually goes on in this city. Lots of stuff comes through Baton Rouge, man. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) lots lots of bad stuff comes through this city. Yes, yes, But, I mean, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You know, if you knew what actually goes on in this city on a daily occurrence, wouldn't leave your house. You wouldn't leave your house. Yeah. Um, now, does it happen every you know every day, all day, mm-hmm. everywhere? No, it doesn't. Uh, it's the close and, calls that people don't it, know about. But it's yeah. the close calls yeah. that, that most people don't hear about or yeah. see about that yeah. don't make the news, that don't do this. Uh, so you know, uh, you know, at, at that point, and I'm sure emotionally, I, I was. De- really defensive. Yeah. I, I'm sure I was. And well, this is just over that, 24 hours from when this had happened. A lot of that is a blur to me because I don't yeah. really remember, you yeah. know, a lot of what any, a lot of it was done strictly on emotion, yes. but I felt, uh, you know, law enforcement, we were under attack mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a lot of people, literally. a lot of people can say what they want to say. And there were a lot of things that come out that said that law enforcement's not under attack. They're overreacting. They're doing this or doing that. Well, I, I got three dead policemen mm-hmm. to say that yeah. we're not overreacting. Yeah, you know. So, um, you know, there was probably some defiance there, mm-hmm. and 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 some instructing of of the community of, of what was going on mm-hmm. and how actually serious this is. And you know, because every I, I've got seven hundred people. The sheriff's got seven hundred people. The state police has got this many. You know, over a thousand troopers on the road. We're responsible for their safety, yeah. and, and you know, we at that point in time, those officers felt like there was a target on their backs. Yeah. And you know, again, there was a lot of people saying that we were overreacting, mm-hmm. but we weren't overreacting. And uh, you know, keeping my officers safe was a main priority for me. Keeping the citizens of the city safe was a main priority for me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I. It, it, it like it, like I say, it, it was a lot of emotion at the time. It was a lot of, of 
you know, we felt like we were under attack. Yeah. And, you know, being defensive and defiant to making sure that my officers were safe were, was a priority for me. Over the next few weeks, really leading up to the week that the flood happened, the narrative had shifted a lot in town. Correct. I think people started to turn down the volume. Correct. And start to listen to one another and talk with each other instead of screaming at one another. Right. There were a series of memorials in town to remember these men, and we have since learned more about that day and their camaraderie and how you've got one guy who had just finished a shift in plain clothes, uh, another young man who had just finished a shift in uniform Mm -hmm. who was clocking out but went back to see what was going on, and one guy going on, and the way that this played out in all of these families that have been impacted by this. And so in as much as the media painted Baton Rouge as this town with a huge divide down the middle, we get to August. And in the span of two and a half days, we got Katrina'd. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you saw... First of all, the birth of the Cajun Navy, <laughs> and you also saw the compassion that people have for one another. People either from the inner city to the country clubs were jumping in to help neighbors. You, you saw the true love of this city, right? Is what you saw. Uh, it was. Uh, it, it's you know we like you said we went from you know a contentious part yeah. of our history yeah. of this city. And then two weeks later, you know, everybody is pitching in. Right. Everybody's jumping in with both feet. Everybody's help. I mean, the the outpouring of support for this community was was huge. Yeah, I've never seen anything like yeah. it. And we were being inundated with just people that wanted to help. Right. You know, they wanted to come and they wanted to help. And uh, you know, uh, it didn't matter what part of the city you were in. You know that that flood water went where it wanted to go, <laughs> that's and right. there, there wasn't no stopping it. No, so that's right. I mean, you had flood waters in North Baton Rouge, South Baton Rouge, East Baton Rouge. You know, you had it everywhere. It, it was never seen anything like it before. Never Carl. seen anything I, like. I've never seen places that have never had water right. got water. So not just uh, a little water, six, seven oh, feet yes. of water. I, I mean, you yeah. know, their whole house is underwater, and uh, you know, the true love of this city came out. Yeah, and, and th- this community. Uh, stepped up and said, "You know what? What is important here?" Yeah. And but they put everything aside and yeah. said, "This is more important right now. Human life is important. Yeah. Our city is important. Yeah. We have to help our community." That had to be a recharge. It with was. with what had happened a month before to have that kind of love outpouring oh, of love. I mean, it it had to be. I mean, and you talk about a stressful time for everybody. I mean, I was out there helping friends and right. neighbors as much. Thankfully, you know, my subdivision didn't flood, knock on wood, but lots of people did, and you try to help. And that was the emotion of the moment, that people said, what can we do? Right. How can we, what, what, is it water, is it food? Is it, you know, can we help you rip out some sheetrock? Sheet yep. That was a full-on showing of who we really are. That's correct. Uh, that If you want to know what Baton Rouge is, Go back to August, and uh, you'll see it. That, that's what Baton Rouge truly is. And then we get through the elections. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you get for making my power go out. Oh, Lord, <laughs> so 
Uh, we moved through the end of the year, and uh, to be honest, there was the the town was numb after right. the floods because of all of the things that people were dealing with. It was such an emotional end of summer for right. Baton Rouge right. from July to August, and and what happened in, in August was still going on in September because once people were able to get the water out of their homes or their offices, the cleanup needed to begin. Right. And God help you if you had to go to FEMA to get assistance oh with God. some of this. That's a, you know, a whole other yeah. thing. I mean, they're, they're, they're still trying to get back in their still houses. Trying to, just you know, still people trying. still are not back. Absolutely. And so we get through this election cycle, which was, as elections go, not terribly contentious between the two main candidates right. because people were just, like I said, they were numb. They were just... Right. They, and then the election happens, and we 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 come into the new year, and <laughs> without delaying it, the 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 mayor elect announces that she wants to make a change. Well, she did that in the pre-election. Well, in, in the in the in the yeah, campaign, in sa- campaign, saying that she yeah. was going to make a change, and you know, in the interest of of transparency to people, uh, Mayor Broom at the time was Mayor Elect Broom was in this room, sat in that chair, and said she wanted to do it. And I said, I, I don't agree with right. that. I don't see how it how it helps anything. Right. Uh, it and she said she had made some promises, and she feels like if she didn't do this. People would say that she's not uh, that she was accepting status quo or something of, of of that nature, and you know. But I gave her my my disagree with, disagreement with it because I don't think that that would have ended any of the contention that was seemingly in existence with some in Baton Rouge. So during the campaign, that's going on, and you hear now. Listen for people who who are, who have never heard you talk about these things. You are just not a devious, you know, shot throwing person. I mean, right. I know that about you. So, right. I mean, you're not going to be that guy. No. But having heard that in the election, did you just brush it off and say, "Oh, that's just politics," or did you take that seriously? Uh, I, I would say that uh, I probably didn't pay attention to it in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, after the election, it's something I had to pay attention to. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, during her during the campaign, I guess I didn't. I, I didn't really pay attention to it. I guess. At what point did you know it was a really serious thing? It was a reality that she was going to try to make that change. Uh, it was probably right after she got elected. Did you and she have a conversation about it? We had a meeting and, uh, you know, she told me, you know, she stuck to her guns and said that she wanted to make a change. Without, without asking about the discussion that happened right. there, when it was all over, how'd you feel? Uh, I, I felt like I was treated unfairly. I, I felt like you don't even know me. You you don't know what we do at the Baton Rouge Police Department. You don't know you don't know anything. You know at least at least find out what we do and who I am, and then you can make your decision. And you know you're the mayor. I got to respect that. I understand that. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't feel like that was done at all. Was there ever a point? in the period between the mayor taking office and you uh, retiring where you would have said, okay, let's, let's fix this. Let's, let's try to work this out for the betterment of the city, the department, the, the office of, of mayor president. Was there ever a point where you felt like it was salvageable? No, I, I don't believe, I mean, I had hope, um, I had hoped that we could come to some type of neutral ground, mm-hmm. but uh, 
it, it was any hope that I had always that I had had uh, I felt was always turned away. How so? Well, just uh, uh, that it wasn't up for discussion. Uh, that the change was going right. to be made. It, it was. It was going to happen. How did that impact you doing the job of being chief of police? Well, I, I think, you know, everybody has a boss and everybody mm-hmm. has to work for somebody. And when that relationship between that person and the boss is stressed or mm-hmm. is uh, in contention, it makes it it makes it very difficult uh, to, to be able to do your job. I, I mean, it, it you know, it, when when you know you don't have the support of the administration, trying to do your job is uh, extremely difficult. You, at what point did you know? Because initially, you were steadfast in doing your job, staying on and leading the men and women of the Baton Rouge Police Department. At what point did you make the decision, and I'm sure you and Tammy spoke about it, mm-hmm. where it was, okay, um, I, I think it's time to, you know, hitch the wagon and ease on down the road well I guess it, it got to a point where there there was no light at the end of the tunnel you know there there Describe was no, what that means there was no ray of hope here that you know this is going to always be a contentious relationship this is not going to work um you know it, it's it, it just got to a point where it started affecting my health it started affecting my family it started affecting um the, the citizens of this community yeah. because it, well, you know, we're public servants, and our job is to serve this community. And when, you know, the administration and the police chief can't get along and can't communicate, that that doesn't serve the community well. So it wasn't working for anybody, and there wasn't anybody benefiting out of this. So, you know, I had my time to retire uh, after some long conversations. Uh, it was We just felt like that was the best move. Yeah, I've known you a long time, and for people who—, who have not had the opportunity to get to know you. And I said a second ago that you are not the person who's going to go out and throw bombs right. and, and, and be vocally critical in any way. Right. I know that about you, but the public doesn't know. And so right. when people see you not having, or you and the mayor not having a public tiff, which I don't know that she had a taste for either, to be honest, but, yeah. uh, Explain to people why you weren't interested in doing that and, and going on to media and criticizing the mayor while you were there. Well, well number one, that's, it's, that's not me. Uh, just number one, I, I, don't, I don't see a need in that. I think, it's, uh, I, I think this community is smarter than, than – I think they're smart enough to figure things out, and mm-hmm. I think they saw what was going on. Uh, there was – I mean, you know, the mayor was very vocal – in what she wanted to do. Um, and you know, uh, I, I felt like I had to do the the things that were correct and right. And, uh, you know, I felt like I did the right things. Uh, she didn't agree with them, but I felt like they were right. Do you think you were being blamed for obstructing the termination of those officers? Oh, I'm sure at some point you speaking from the mayor. Oh, just in general. Well, 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 the mayor never said that to me, right. but but people who had the the viewpoint that you needed to go. Do you think that that was a reason? Oh, I'm sure some of them thought that. I, I wouldn't doubt that. If the mayor had come to you and said in January, you know, I would like to finish the balance of my term, 
with a chief who begins as as I am in here in office. And I'd like to work with you through the time you have before you retire and reach that designated number. And let's work together uh, with the department, you doing your job. But eventually I want to be able to transition. What would you have said? That would have been perfect. I, I mean, I would have been more than willing to do that. But that never happened. When you made the decision that you were going to retire and you informed the mayor, is that, is that something via letter? I mean, how, how does that process work? Uh, I wrote a letter mm-hmm. uh, to the mayor and it gave her my, sure. my intentions to retire. I had been uh, in some conversations with Dr. Lorenz at the time, who yeah. was the acting mm-hmm. CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my conversations were, were with him sure. uh, and then the letter was written to the mayor. Did you, did she say anything to you once she knew that you were going to, no. ret- uh, what was your, was your last conversation about this? No. When was the last time y'all spoke when you were still on the job? I don't really know, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. And it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's been, it's not news to people to say that you didn't dialogue with the mayor very no, often. No, I mean, everybody knew that. So, and, and not, to, not to beat a dead horse, with that being the reality uh, in the building, how'd you go about doing what you had to do every day? I mean, we just, I just did, I did what police chief does. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I, uh, there the last couple of months, most of my conversations were with Dr. Lorenz. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't believe I had very A man of high integrity, in my a, opinion. A, a very, a very good man who yeah. was put in a very bad position. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I, most of my conversations were through him. And, and you know, even under Mayor Holden, uh, I dealt a lot with uh, William Daniel at mm-hmm. the time, who was the CAO then. So that wasn't really unnormal, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have a lot of conversations with him. I know that you don't have, because of the person you are, a taste for any back and forth now after the fact you've retired no. and, and have moved on. Correct. But if you had the opportunity, and I guess you do here, to talk to the people of Baton Rouge about your time as an officer and as police chief, and then really the last year of your being there, not being able to have that year where you know you're going to retire and being able to dialogue with the city in different parts of it, what would you say? Uh, I, I, you know, being a Baton Rouge police officer was, was you know, like I said earlier, it, it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. Uh, it was uh, a complete joy for me. It was the... I, I, you know, a lot of people say, you know, if I could go back in time, I would do things differently. Uh, but I wouldn't. I, I would do them exactly the same. Uh, I, I would, I would, you know, it, it was, it was, it was a dream come true for me. And, uh, you know, it, it was an honor for me to, to put that uniform on every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it always will be. It'll always be a highlight of my life, yeah. no matter you know how you know it didn't end the way that I wanted it to end, uh, but you know uh, I feel like through my 32 years with the police department, I have touched a lot of people, oh, yeah. and I've done a lot of good for a lot of people and for this community. And I, uh, you know, that that's all that really matters. Uh, you know, uh, the relationship between me and the mayor was was contentious at best, uh, but 
she's not going to tarnish my career and what I accomplished in my career, uh, you know, and uh, I'm not going to allow her to do that. So for me, it was more about what I, what, what, the, what the things I was able to do as chief and as a Baton Rouge police officer that helped this community and move this community forward. Is there anything that you would like the citizens of Baton Rouge to know about you that they may not have gotten the chance to know? Outside of the mm-hmm. fact that you and Jeff Leduff could take a, a routine on stage and go around <laughs> the country and make a billion dollars, but what uh, what is something you'd like the public to know? Uh, well, I'd like to thank them, I guess, number one, for allowing me the honor uh, of being their chief and leading their department, but also just the honor of being a Baton Rouge police officer. Uh, to me, that was a dream come true, and, uh, I, you know, it's something that I will always, always treasure. And, uh, you know, it, um, you know, that, that we have a great community here. Mm-hmm. We have a great, our city is not as broken as some people would like you to think it is. Uh, we have a very, one of the top rated police departments in the country. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that the relationship between the community and, and the police department isn't as bad as some people would like you to believe. Yeah. Those are people that have, uh, that have, uh, they, they have ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a great community. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to raise a family. I agree. And, uh, you know, for those that want to bring us down, shame on you, yeah. you know. But as you saw during the flood, the true Baton Rouge will always step up to the plate. No doubt. Well, man, this has been, this is episode 146, and this has been the most unique one that I've done. Uh, 150 is coming. I don't know how to top, you've topped Richard Condon. Oh, wow. It's like, we, I mean, it was a great conversation that included, you know, the power just dropping in the building for the, it just, it doesn't happen here. Uh, going on generator and then me all of a sudden getting the hiccups and, and just, uh, but I, but I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Is there anything? that we didn't touch on that you would like to touch on? No, I, I, no, I, I believe we touched on everything. Uh, I, you know, the last, you know, I, the last two years will be what is remembered. Sure. And uh, I, I believe that the men and women of the Baton Rouge Police Department did this city a tremendous honor no and question. a tremendous job in what they did through some very, very rough times uh, that many departments in this country we'll never see and the the brpd and you know and i'm not taking anything away from the sheriff or the, sure. or, the or the state police who who were there to help us absolutely all the way yeah uh but you know i am a little little biased <laughs> to the to the boys and the blue <laughs> and gray. a little bit yeah so uh you know the men and women of the baton Rouge police department did an outstanding job they do an outstanding job every single day and i couldn't be more proud is it a bit of relief to be able to come and sit down and get this stuff off your chest after so long? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I appreciated the time, and like I said, it's it's um, it's it's been a, a great chance over the years of watching you do the job, and I have personally vouched not just on this show, but in places about the kind right. of man you are and your compassion for this city, and it's a shame. Uh, that sound bites so often define who people are, right. but it does indeed happen. And I hope for people who heard this show, who got a chance to hear you 
articulate why you're a police officer and what those days were like and your thoughts about who you think Baton Rouge is right. uh, will come through and hopefully give people a perspective on who you are as a man. Hope so. Thank you, bud. All right. Thank you. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Rodriguez, And I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your host for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com iTunes, and the Talk 107.3 mobile app. This is Jeff LaDuff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly LaDuff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website at openeyesafetytraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. Clay Young here with Brian Lowe with Brian Lowe Financial and online where, Harrison? At brianlowefinancial.com. That's the new senior partner at B-Lowe There you Financial go. He's taking over one day. <laughs> Let's talk about cash, Brian. For people who are thinking about what to do and they're watching the market, what's your recommendation? Well, look, everybody knows the market's high. Yeah. It's made a great return last year. Yeah, a lot of you sat on the sideline and didn't make that and you're mm-hmm. kicking yourself now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're wondering, should you now dip some of that money and put it into the investments in yeah. the market. Yeah. The question is, look, we've gotten 10% return on cash. Mm-hmm. So if you think the market's high and you still want to wait for a while for this market to correct, we can make a good return on your cash. Now, we're not going to guarantee it's 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's linked to some index. It's 100% liquid. But you know, if we make it something better than money market rate, you make three to five. Yeah. Look, all these people, they all forget I said that to beat the bank. Yeah. Well, they made 10%. It wasn't a growth investment. It was a liquid account that made better return on your money. Give me a call. Call Brian today or look him up at brianlowfinancial.com. This is the Clay Young Show on podcast225.com. <laughs> I don't know. That might be the, the best podcast of all time. A power outage and me with the hiccups. And it's, I, I had to kill the mic after a certain point because I'm in the background. <sighs> Just, uh, it's like, my goodness, man, I'm too old to be dealing with the hiccups. And then (laughs) we wrap up and as I'm walking the chief out, I take a phone call and they crank up again. And by the way, incidentally, on that same phone call, the power comes back on and in all of the building. I don't know what the heck happened. Thank goodness that the building is uh, generator backed so that it it works, but you got to recycle everything to get it going again but anyway <laughs> it's in the books 146 is definitely one for the books and that conversation with chief dabity was enlightening and i think that for many people who have been waiting to hear his thoughts on the last year and a half plus they got that And you got a chance to get some insight into this last year for the chief. And 
Hey, you heard it in his own words, and I said this during the discussion, and I'll say it again. He's just not someone who's going to fire shots or bash the mayor or do anything like that. He's just he's going to tell you where he stands on things, what his perspective is, and you got a chance to hear that. And I enjoyed the discussion with him. It's it was a rough period for Baton Rouge in general, and I think when he left the office of police chief, there were 33 murders in the city. And now we're getting up to 100. So I, it was likely not he who was the problem. I, I think that community-wise, we've got to address some of what's happening with our young people who are living life without purpose, or at least one that is constructive, and making certain that young people who have the capacity to take advantage of an opportunity have an opportunity to take advantage of. And I would really like to see that. And that doesn't all fall on the feet of government. Quite frankly, I don't think most of it falls on the feet of government, with the exception of making certain we have an economy that allows businesses the the latitude to be able to stay in operation so that they can hire people and then return tax money in the form of the things that make a city great. And so that's an entirely different discussion. But Carl Dabity is an upstanding guy, and he's always been that guy. And I know that not everyone likes the last year of him being in that office, and every person is entitled to their opinion. Hey, that's the way the world works. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. And I'm entitled to mine. And I will tell you that that's a man who absolutely does care about this city. And he is not someone who was looking to harm anyone. And it's a shame when people that you don't know get cast as being one thing or another based upon some report. And as for the mayor wanting to have her own chief or have a new chief in there when she was here before we talked about earlier this year. And I don't know, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to invite the mayor back. I don't know if she'd accept the invitation, but I would certainly extend it. And I'll think about it. I'll think about uh, doing that. Maybe I will just as a one year uh, conversation with her. But I said to her that I didn't agree with the decision to remove or try to remove Carl Dabity and my premise was always that maybe work with him to try to ease your way to a transition where not only do you get to have a chief that you have the opportunity to choose, but because Chief Dabity was so close to retirement, it, a retirement, it gives him a chance to really leave the way that I think he should have left. And I mean, no one's going to say that I know who knows him, who's going to say that he is a criminal or that he is someone who does the office of disservice. I mean, it just, it isn't the case. And I can't really cite examples where people can say that when people were calling for his job, it's like, why? I mean, but anyway, like I said, everybody's entitled to their opinion, just like I'm entitled to mine. And, and those are my thoughts. So I enjoyed him coming in and being our guest on this week's show. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends about us. If you haven't subscribed yet, it's free. Subscribe 
on the podcast app. You can get it there. If you're not an Apple user, you can just go to the website, podcast225.com, every week to hear the show. And with that one, y'all be safe out there, and I'll catch you next time here on The Clay Young Show. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.